the 2019-2020 Kansas Jayhawk men's basketball team. That's it. That that's that's the open. That's the intro. There's too much to unpack. So let's talk about it. This is Wave the Wheat. home of Kansas Jayhawk basketball talk and all that implies. I'm your host, Swaff. Hunkered down in quarantine, quarantine day, uh, who even knows these days. And, and normally when you start a podcast, you do it at the beginning of the season. Um, and this is clearly not the recommended way to jump into the podcast game, but I figure everybody's locked in their uh, home or basement or wherever. And so why not? So uh, like the Open said, the 2019-2020 Kansas Jayhawk basketball season, I mean, like, where do you even begin? Um, it, it, it is historic for many reasons, but I think that it's only going to be remembered for how it ended. And we'll get into that towards the end. But I think there are way too many positives throughout this season to just kind of dwell on the fact that we didn't get to see it end. And I know that's a big disappointment for everybody, me included, because I thought we had the best team and I thought we were playing our best ball at the best possible point in the season, only to have the rug just kind of ripped out from under us. But um, before we get into, you know, the season, let's go back. I want to go back to a year ago April 2019. Remember, we we had just come off of arguably the worst season in the last 30 years. Now, it's relative. For for KU fans, I know we won 25 games. We won an NCAA tournament game. Why why do you say it's the worst season ever? Yeah, I know. But but when you're a KU fan, that's kind of the standard. Um, But everyone who watched all those games over the 18-19 season knows that it was just terrible. It was awful. I mean, there were games, numerous games, where we just got run out of the gym. And it was not fun. And I think we all, when we when the brackets came out for the, the 18-19 NCAA tournament, we see Auburn there waiting in the second round. Um, we, we all see the writing on the wall. We all know exactly what's going to happen. And sure enough, Auburn obliged, ran us out of the gym, hit about 45 threes, it seems like, and the season ended. And let's go back to April of 2019. We're fresh off of an awful season. Dotson is gone. As a bookie, for, for all intents and purposes, we think Doak is gone. Quentin Grimes, as big of a disappointment as he was, he's gone. And we didn't have a whole lot coming in at that point in time. And, and when I reference people were talking, it's mostly fog.net. So shout out to all you John Foggs out there. Thanks for listening. All the John Foggs over on fog.net are talking and it's a legitimate train of thought. Like, are we going to be worse as bad as the 1819 season was if we lose Dotson 
and we lose Doak, and all we got coming in is some guy, some white guy named Christian Braun Brown, however you say it. We we know it's Brown now. Are we going to be worse in the 1920 season than we were in the 1819 season? And that's a legitimate sports argument. All of our eggs at that point were in the R.J. Hampton recruiting basket. And we know how that turned out, but and, and let me just say, I, 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 for, I am fortunate enough to live in the area uh, where RJ played his high school basketball. So I saw RJ numerous times in high school. And I'm going to say this, and it's going to be a, maybe a little bit of a polarizing statement. But if RJ Hampton was a Kansas Jayhawk this season, we go undefeated. We go 31-0. Now, the season all ends the same way. We still don't get to see if, if we finish the thing like we wanted. But if R.J. Hampton is on this team, we are undefeated. We go 31-0. And, and I'll explain why. You look at the three losses. You look at the Duke loss, 28 turnovers. R.J. Hampton is a ball handler. He's a lead, dominant guard who gets buckets. He is a scoring machine. The Duke game, we lose by two. Now, really, you could say, well, we lost by five. We hit a three at the buzzer. The scoreboard says we lost by two. 28 turnovers we had in that game. You think if we have R.J. Hampton handling the ball for 30 minutes, we have 28 turnovers? I don't think so. I think we win that game. You look at the Villanova game. We hold Villanova to under 60 points. I mean, they hit the 10, 12 threes that game and still only score 55 points. And the only reason we lost that game is we completely peed down our leg in the last two minutes. Dotson had a horrible turnover. He had a, uh, a missed free throw. If you have another guard out on the floor, and remember, Marcus Garrett left that game. He missed half the game with an ankle injury. So if you have another guard who's as, as fully capable as Marcus or Devon Dotson at handling the ball under pressure, I don't think we lose that game. And then you look at the Baylor game, where you can say, well, we lost that game by 12 points. I don't think there's anything that could have been done differently in retrospect to overcome a 12-point margin of defeat. Well, keep in mind, we were up five in that game, and Dotson goes out with a hip injury. Garrett is playing on a on a bad wheel. I mean, he's been playing on bad wheels ever since he showed up in Lawrence, but that game in particular, it was, it was known at the time he's playing on a bad wheel. He's basically playing on one leg. Now, that's our two primary ball handlers, our two main guards – one is out and one is playing at about 50%. You put RJ Hampton out there for 30 plus minutes. I don't think we give up the lead in the first half and and I think we find a way to win that game. So I know I know KU fans, I know the John Foggs, we get bitter when recruits don't pick us and we say, well, we didn't need him. Oh, he wasn't that great. No, uh, RJ, I mean, he's going to be a lottery pick. You put a lottery pick on this team. You put a lottery pick on a team that went 28-3, and was the most dominant team in college basketball at the end of the season. And and what pro prospects do we have on this team? Dotson's maybe a late first rounder, early second rounder. Doak is maybe a late first rounder, early second rounder. You put a lottery pick on this team? I think we go undefeated. 
But that is neither here here nor there because we all waited up that June morning just to see RJ Hampton tell us what we would had kind of been told 48 hours prior that he's going overseas. So it never happened. So, oh well. But we get good news. We get good news. Dotson's coming back. We get. I remember uh, where I was when I saw that pop up on Twitter. Dotson's coming back. And then soon after, uh, Grimes, Quentin Grimes announced that he was withdrawing his name from the NBA draft. And for like half a second, because that's how long he was a Jayhawk after he announced he was coming back. For like half a second, I was like, you know what? All right, we'll take it. I mean, the kid's a McDonald's All-American. Granted, he was, by KU standards, he was a disappointment. Especially when you consider that that Self said before the season, he might be the most complete guard I've ever coached at KU. I, they can't all be tense. Anybody who's anybody who, who's ever spent five uh, minutes in, in the dating scene or whatever knows that they can't all be tense. But has there been a has there been a bigger whiff by Self? on evaluating a, a prospect of that caliber. Now, you, you could say Josh Selby, but Josh Selby was hurt. Josh Selby also won us a game. Now, you could say Quentin Grimes helped us win. He hit five threes against Michigan State that first game. He helped us win that game. But other than that, did he was he ever the, the difference in the outcome of the game on, on a positive note? I don't remember it. But even then, you get a McDonald's All-American that wants to come back for a second year, you get excited. Now, five minutes later, he decides, I'm getting out of Dodge, and decides to take his ball and go home to Houston. But we do have, we do have Dotson coming back. We do have Big Dope coming back. Um, we've got some freshman pieces that, that we don't really know how they're going to fit. Um, we do snag Isaiah Moss right at the end as a grad transfer, and then he promptly pulls a hammy. So we don't know what he's going to provide for a while. But we do have the foundation of what we all assumed would be a pretty solid team. We felt good. And then the preseason rankings come out, and we're in some publications, we're number one, some were number two, we're, we're top five in all of them. We're, we're pretty optimistic. Now, you could say, well, in 18-19, we were the preseason number one team, and look how that turned out. Well, that was different. That was different. I, I think we all understood that if Doak stayed healthy, this team had a chance to win the whole thing. Well, it turns out most of the pundits agree. We're number two... I believe going into the season playing Duke in our first game. And I, and I got to say, I was really, really optimistic that we were going to run them out of the gym. I thought that we had the size, we had experience. I did not realize how good Cassius Stanley was at that moment. I thought when, of course, when he didn't pick us, well, let's find all his flaws. He can't shoot it. He's, all I can do is jump. All I can do is dunk, etc. Well, yeah, he can do that, and he does that very well. He—he's a good player. He's a really good player, and he—I think in that game, he won the game for Duke. He had a couple steals and a couple run-out dunks that tie one. I think one tied the game. One took the lead. 
late in the second half. And I think he won the game for him. But going in, I thought we have the we have the size advantage, we have experience. We're going to run these guys. We're going to wear them down. We're going to run them out of the gym. And I remember self talking about how we're going back to two bigs. And a lot of people, a lot of John Foggs didn't want to hear that. They thought that four guards was the way to win basketball games in the 21st century. Um, but personally, I was a little excited to go back to the two bigs just because it was kind of a throwback to when we won a national championship. And I thought at the time, I thought we had the personnel to be okay. I thought for whatever shortcomings we would have offensively, we would get away with it with two bigs in the areas of defense and rebounding. Boy, was I wrong. God, that was miserable. Those games early on were miserable. Miserable. Watching watching Doak and Big Dave just plod along inside, no space to drive. It was oh, it was awful. And I held on, and you know, we obviously we lose to Duke. We've we've already addressed that. We lost to Duke by two. 28 turnovers. I think a lot a lot to do with the 28 turnovers is there's just nowhere to go offensively. And so we got to put that one behind us. We got to move on. We cruise along until we go to Maui over the Thanksgiving break. And when the bracket came out, I think we all just kind of anticipated KU playing Michigan State in the championship game. And that was a fair bet. Thought we might have a struggle with BYU in the second round. Um, they they seem to be the team that always gives us fits in the tournament. The team full of white guys that jack a ton of threes. But I thought we would be okay until we played Michigan State. And of course, Michigan State loses on the first day of the tournament. So that ruined that. And I don't think anybody at the time really understood how good Dayton was. And of course, they rolled through days one and two, and we take care of business against Chaminade. We take care of business against BYU, beat them by 15 or so. And it sets up a matchup with Dayton. And I remember Jay Billis and a lot of the national level talking heads say, they were saying, hey, Dayton can win this game. And it's kind of like, yeah, they're an unranked team. They got one good player. I don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, that was probably the first moment of the 1920 season where you could kind of sit back and say, man, this group is special. This group has something. And and here's why for me. I think the 18-19 season scarred so many people. I think it, it made us forget uh, when we had in, in the uh, – 16, 17, 18 seasons. We had Frank for two of those. We had Perry Ellis. We had Devontae Graham. Think of how many times in those seasons we would be down four, six, eight points in the second half only to find a way to get stops and get buckets late in the game and win the game. Numerous times. I could rattle off 10, 15 games just off the top of my head where – we find a way late in the game to get stops and get buckets, get back in the game and win the game. 
Now, the 18-19 season, that team did not have that capability whatsoever. If we weren't hitting shots, we got run out of the gym. That's simple. And it happened. Think of all the times that it happened. It happened against at Kentucky. They ran us out of the gym in the last 10 minutes of the game. At Texas Tech, they beat us by 20-plus. At Iowa State. At Oklahoma. Hell, we even lost to Shaka Smart. We lost to Texas. That's, that, that's proof of, at, at just how underwhelming that team was. So I think a lot of fans were scarred by the 18-19 season. And I think it was reassuring to watch the Dayton game. I mean, we were down eight past the midway point in the second half. And I believe we went on a 13-0 run. And it was just stops, layups, steal, layup. Good uh, first shot defense, rebound, throw it inside, and one. I mean, it was great to watch. And I think if we're all honest with, with ourselves, that was the first point in the season, especially after the Duke loss, that we thought to ourselves, hey, we got something here. So that's a huge win. We keep rolling. Uh, we knew looking at the schedule that uh, the infamous getaway game, the Christmas break getaway game, we got to go to Villanova. Villanova seems to be our kryptonite. Jay Wright just seems to have self's number over the past five years. And so I think we were all pretty aware that this was going to be a tough game. I don't think Villanova is anywhere near what they've been in the past three years, but it is on the road. It is an early game and it is the getaway game. And we've lost so many of these in the past that I think a lot of fans were already mentally preparing themselves for what ended up happening. And we lose by one. Now, I I think we played pretty well in that game. I mean, we hold a high octane offense in Villanova to under 60 points. If I would have told you before that game, hey, Villanova's getting ready to hit 10 threes. They're going to shoot 40 some. I think they shot 41 threes total. And we're only going to give up 50, I think it was 58 points. I think you would take that. I think you I think you would be happy with that. But we had our own troubles offensively. Marcus, like we said earlier, Marcus went out with an ankle injury, which really hurt. And then we had the lead late, and we just didn't get it done. Big turnover, big missed free throw. Didn't guard a three-point shooter. Got to look at the end, but uh, it, it didn't fall. So going into the Christmas break, we got two losses. We know coming out, we got conference play starting. And looking at the schedule, you got West Virginia, and then you got to go to Ames, to Iowa State. Those are two tough games. I mean, anyone, anyone will tell you that going to Ames, Iowa is tough. So to handle West Virginia and then completely boat race Iowa State on the road, that's a great start. A great start to league play. And then you got Baylor coming in. And we all remember that game. We talked about it a little bit earlier. Uh, we got dominated. There's That's all there is to it. We got dominated. Obviously, you can point to, to Dotson going out in the first half. I mean, that's huge. You're... you're all-American point guard, leading scorer, 
goes out for a critical stretch in the first half, yeah, you're going to have problems, especially when your other lead guard is playing on a bum ankle. But it turns out, Scott Drew, if it was not a good day for the Scott Drew can't coach crowd, but it turns out Scott Drew put a pretty good game plan together, took us out of what we really wanted to do. And they just, I mean, they handle us. And, and I think if you go back and rewatch that game, the first three shots they made, one was a pull-up three from God knows where, one was a, a running off-balance scoop layup that found its way in off the glass, and then the third one was kind of a like a, a 15-foot uh, Freddie Gillespie jumper that he shoots probably 20%. So those three go in. You, you kind of had an idea it was going to be one of those days. But I, they handled us. And at that moment, we're 2-1. and one, We're looking up at Baylor. I mean, it's, it, it, it didn't look good. Because as good as the Big 12 has been over the past six, eight years, I mean, the league was down this year. The Big 12 was spare this year. Outside of Kansas and Baylor, I mean, they were bad. It was bad. And I maybe maybe what I'm trying to say is the bottom of the league usually can jump up and win a game against one of the top three or four teams. And that just didn't happen this year. So with Baylor taking a one-game lead, winning one on the road in Allen Fieldhouse, you knew it was going to be a tough road. And I remember even uh, there was discussion on the fog, like, do we have to win out? Do we have to win the rest of our Big 12 games to even have a chance to win the league? And it, the, the chatter was, oh, well, Baylor's going to drop some. They always lose games they shouldn't lose. But like I just said, the bottom of the league was so bad, I just didn't see that happening. So at 2-1, and one, with 15 conference games left, I mean, the, you're, you're already looking at the prospect of you're having to run the table? Finishing with the 17 and one Big 12 record that's never been done. Yeah, it, it, it didn't look good. The next big moment was the game against Kansas State at home. Obviously, that's been talked about ad nauseum when it happened, following it. So I don't want to get into the minutia of what happened, who's at fault, what self should have done, etc., what I will say about that game and, and the outcome of that game was it was the end of two bigs. So with Silvio being out effectively for the rest of the year, you can't play Big Dave and Doke together with no with this, you don't have a backup. Because remember, Mitch isn't playing. Mitch Lightfoot's not playing. So that was the end of two bigs. And to be honest. And we'll get into this in a little bit when we talk about the players. It was probably the best thing for Silvio. Going into the year, he was he had he had his suspension reduced. He was going to get to play from the start of the season. Everyone was fired up. Silvio was fired up. The first couple of games, he missed a bunch of easy bunnies. I mean, the, the ball just wasn't going in the basket like we were used to those those few games we saw his freshman year. And I think his body language really started to tank. After the poor start, I think you could just 
tell on his face and in his body language that he wasn't fully engaged. And as a result, his playing time went down. I mean, he was a DMP coach's decision of, of more times than not leading up to the Kansas State game. So I think in the end, it was the best thing for him. It was the best thing for the team. And the proof is clearly in the pudding because beat Tennessee without it, really without, with Doak and nobody else, Doak and Tristan and Aruna at the five, beat Tennessee at home. We find a way to win the annual Bill Self loses at his alma mater game at Oklahoma State. Beat them by double digits. Beat Tech at home. Beat Texas. Win a tough game at TCU where they come back and make it a two-possession game. I think it was a four-point game with four or five minutes left. And we go on a 9-0 run or so to, to end the game to win by double digits. And then the next big moment for me in the season was the game at West Virginia. I thought if we can find a way to win this game, because we have such a hard time winning at West Virginia, if we can find a way to win this game, there's no question we win at Baylor. And if you remember watching that game, we won 58-49. to So it's not exactly like we lit the world on fire offensively. And I believe we were down eight or nine in the second half. And about the eight-minute mark or so to the finish line, we dominated. Dominated. Defensively, we got stops. We forced them out of rhythm offensively. I mean, it it was as ugly as it was offensively. It was so pleasing to watch to dominate those guys on their home floor, a place where we'd struggled so much in the past. So we keep winning, we keep winning, and then we go to the rematch with Baylor. And the thing I know about Bill Self is if you give him a chance, a second chance, he's not going to lose that second matchup. I mean, he's only been swept in Big 12 play one time in his entire tenure at KU. So as optimistic as you possibly could be going to play the number one team on their home court, that was where I was at. And sure enough, and and we end up winning that game at Baylor by three, 64-61. And to be honest with you, I I thought the score wouldn't even be that close. I thought we would find a way. I think our guys had fully bought in to just how good they were capable of being. And I think that we would, I thought we were going to go in there and beat them by 10, 10 plus. Now, Baylor, again, they're, they're a really good team. They deserve, they deserve all the credit, all the accolades. Scott Drew did a phenomenal job with that group. And unfortunately, they got the whole group coming back. But so credit to Baylor, but uh, you're out of your element. To steal a line from the Big Lebowski, you are out of your element, Donnie, when it comes to these type games. Self always seems to find a way to win these games, and he did, again, in this particular situation. And so we close out the regular season on a 16-game winning streak. We run the table. Remember, we said we had to run the table. We ran the table. 
finished 17 and one in Big 12 play, the only time that has ever been done in the history of the league. That's phenomenal. When you have to play everybody twice, you have to play everybody home and home. It is mind-boggling for a team in a Power Five league to go 17 and one. It just doesn't happen. I mean, you look at the ACC; uh, they have unbalanced scheduling. So, a team like Duke this year, in particular, now the league was awful. The ACC was not nearly what it's been in the past. But the only ranked teams they had to play were Florida State, which was at home. And I don't think Virginia was even ranked when they played them. They played Louisville at home. So that's it. I mean, they, they got to play the, the Boston Colleges and the Wake Forest of the world. Whereas in the Big 12, you got to go to everybody's home arena. I mean, it's truly mind-boggling that we could finish 17-1. and one. Now, had I known that the game at... Texas Tech on March the 4th was going to be the last game of the year. I would have watched even harder than what I already do. Now I watch every I watch every game, every second of every game at least once, sometimes twice. So I to steal a line from Greg Marshall, I watch KU basketball angry. I watch angry. Had I known that was going to be the last game of the season for us, I would have watched even angrier. But I I, I was like everybody else. I thought this is great. League champs, back where we're supposed to be. And now it's time for postseason play. And we all know how that turned out. Even when it was, well, we might have to play the Big 12 tournament without fans in the arena. We might have to play the NCAA tournament without fans in the arena. Who cares? I don't have a ticket. Just as long as you play the game. That's all that matters. And it was completely taken away from us. And I think it was going to end up that way anyways, even if we got to play the first and second rounds maybe. At some point, they were going to have to cancel the whole thing. But to not even get one second of postseason play for arguably the most dominant team in KU basketball history. Now, that's quite a statement, but hear me out. Unanimous number one team in the country. Every single publication had us number one by a country mile. Ken Palm, KenPalm.com, Ken Pomeroy's website had us three and a half full points ahead of the second place team, which is pretty rare. We had the highest defensive efficiency rating on Ken Palm in the history of the website. I mean, you tell me who is the best team in the country relative to the field. Now, was college basketball down overall? Yeah, I think you could make that argument. I think it's a very valid argument. But relative to the field, we were hands down the best team in the country by a country mile. And you could not dispute that. Now, does that guarantee you a national championship? No. And KU fans will be the first to tell you, oh, the tournament's a crapshoot. Just a crapshoot. Yeah, I, I think you could make that case. The best team doesn't always win. But I would much rather be the best team going in right? I would much rather be 2012 Kentucky or one of the Villanova teams from 16 or 18. I would rather be in that position than just hoping to get hot for three weeks. But none of that matters because we didn't even get the chance to play. So let's take a look at who is staying 
who is going, who is incoming, and kind of take a look at where this team goes from here. So obviously we're losing three starters. We're losing Yudoka Azubuki to graduation. I guess he could come back for a, a medical redshirt type fifth year, but the, the odds of that happening are just about zero. Um, we're losing Isaiah Moss, probably our best three-point shooter, maybe not percentage-wise. Christian Brown shot a higher percentage, but if you needed a three, who are you going to rely on? I would rely on Isaiah Moss. Um, he's gone to graduation, and Devon Dotson is also going in the NBA. Skipping his final two years, he is moving on. I think we all kind of expected that at the end of the season. Um, first team All-American, or in some publications, first team All-American, Yudoka Azubuki, Big 12 Player of the Year in one service he was the national player of the year or national defensive player of the year so two all-american quality players and a pretty good shooter that's tough that's tough to lose that and and expect to be as good as you were in the future um my gut tells me that we're going to lose one more i really think that one my you the the evidence in front of us suggests that it would be Silvio, Silvio de Souza. Um, but nothing is official as of late April. So who knows? Um, with the, the, the transfer climate and the, the culture of, of I, I don't get what I want as a freshman, so I'm just going to move on. You could maybe speculate that one of the freshmen leaves I Jalen Wilson I don't think it's going to be him his mom's come out and said no he's he ain't leaving he's staying I really doubt that Christian Brown would leave after he started some games and was a big player on what was the best team in the country so that leaves Tristan and Aruna and I would hate I would hate to see him go because I think a lot of people even Jay Billis has said that he might be the the best pro prospect on this team just with his size and his length and his versatility I I think that it would be a, a huge loss if he decided to move on but that is yet to be seen and we'll see Staying, we know for a fact that David McCormick is staying. He's announced it. We know for a fact Ochai Abaji is staying. And we know for a fact that Marcus Garrett is staying. Marcus Garrett was the National Defensive Player of the Year. So that's that's huge. That's huge for a guy like that to come back for his senior year. And I I would only imagine he's going to be even better next year than he was this year. And he was tremendous this year. And for all the John Foggs who complain that he's not Steph Curry and he can't make threes from 35 feet, get over yourselves. This guy completely dominated multiple games this year. Completely changed the trajectory of games. I mean, look at how many games we were struggling. Maybe we were behind. And all of a sudden we get back-to-back Garrett Steals and layups. How many times did he make the right pass? How many times did he set the screen? How many? I mean, it doesn't show up in box scores. 
just how dominant he can be on a game. And Self knows that. And it, it is it is a huge plus for this team to have him coming back for his senior year. And I think I think Big Dave and I think Ochai are going to improve as well. Now, the thing about Ochai, you got to keep in mind, he was last year, the 18-19 season, arguably the worst season in 30 years. He was not even good enough to wear a uniform in, in self's eyes back in November of 2018. And then out of necessity, he's thrown out there, and I'll be darned if he's not the second coming of Kawhi Leonard. I mean... For two weeks, this guy is dunking, he's hitting shots, he's blocking shots, he's getting rebounds, and there was chatter. The John Foggs were chattering, like, is this guy going to be a lottery pick this year? And so when he decided to come back for a sophomore year, there was some kind of like relief like, oh, good, he's coming back. But the bar was set so unrealistically high for Ochai, he should be a redshirt freshman this year. After this season, we should be all pleasantly surprised at how good this kind of unheralded recruit is instead of just pointing out his flaws. Now, he does have flaws. He does need to get better with the ball. He needs to make better decisions. He needs to make better passes. But I think I think players under Bill Self take a huge leap from their sophomore to junior years. I think Wayne Seldon's the best example of that. I mean, Wayne Selden went from arguably a bust to a guy who's played in the NBA for multiple seasons. So hopefully the same is true for Ochai. Now, who do we have coming in? Well, we got three guys that are coming in that were not officially part of the team this year. The first is we're gonna get we're gonna get Mitch back. We're gonna get our, our buddy Mitch Lightfoot back for his fifth season. Obviously, he redshirted this season. I hope, I really hope he was working on his shot this season. I've heard good things from practice, but if he could be somewhat of a stretch four playing alongside playing alongside McCormick next season, that would be a huge bonus. We'll get Jalen Wilson back, the, the highly touted freshman who missed basically the entire season with an ankle injury. I remember the very first exhibition game, Jalen started. First basket of the game, Jalen catches a three or catches the ball in rhythm, jumps up, knocks down a three. And I thought, man, this is exactly what this team needs. Now, he kind of struggled a little bit after that. And he really struggled in the Duke game. And then I believe it was the um, one of the first non-conference games at home, it might have been the, the the East Tennessee State game where he's just running down the court, breaks his ankle. And I, he might have been able to come back uh, towards the end of the year, but he decided, Coach Self decided, family decided, you know what, it's just not worth it. Um, we'll save the year and, and come back ready next year. And hopefully, hopefully he's a shooter. Hopefully he's a good defender. Hopefully he's a rebounder. Um, be a huge plus. The last is a guy that I don't think anybody's seen, but we've heard quite a bit, and that's DeWan Harris. He'll be uh, he'll be a redshirt freshman point guard. He's from he's a local kid from the Kansas City area. Played AAU with Christian Brown. Um, everything I've heard from practice is this guy. This guy's going to be a player, um, which is great. 
because we're we're gonna need we're we're gonna need point guard play next year with Devon gone. You can speculate that Marcus is gonna be the starting point guard. I, mean, I think Self's even basically said that. So we're gonna need a backup point guard and a guy who is a true point guard who can facilitate, who can find the open man, who can get into the paint and dish for an easy dunk. It's going to be huge. Now, the four guys coming in who were not on campus. The first, Bryce Thompson, McDonald's All-American out of Oklahoma. And from all I know, this guy is a professional bucket getter. Crafty, creative, not the best athlete in the world, but a guy who can make shots, a guy who can create his own shot, a guy who can finish in the lane, who can finish through contact, who can finish over people. If he can come in and be a 12 to 15 point per game guy, then I think this team has every opportunity to be as good as the 1920 team. Now, a lot of that depends on other guys, but if Bryce Thompson can come, can come in and be an above-average scorer as a freshman off the ball, playing alongside Marcus, maybe Ochai, maybe Christian Brown, if we can, if we can fill – I mean, we're not going to replace Dotson's 18 a game with one guy, I don't think. But if Bryce Thompson can get us close, then we're in really good shape. Okay, uh, Tyon Grant Foster, Juco transfer from Indian Hills Community College. Um, haven't seen a lot of him. He's a big kid, about 6'7", kind of thin, but long arms, good athlete. Um, just a little bit I've seen, his his jumper looks like a, if Reggie Miller and Larry Bird's jumpers got together in a dimly lit bar and made had a few too many, made some bad decisions, and had a baby. That's kind of what... Tyon's jumper would look like but it seems to go in he was the the highest rated juco player in america i know um everyone that's been around him knows that he's special they know that he, he maybe he doesn't pass the eye test in certain areas maybe he doesn't check some of the boxes that like some of the recruiting services need checked before they sign off on a guy but these guys who know this kid know that he's going to be special and and self even said this kid would have started on our team this year the 1920 team so i mean that's that's pretty high praise coming from the man himself now we know sometimes self whiffs but hopefully not in this case and then the other two i mean i i really don't see how they play much of a much of an impact role on next year's team. Jethro Muskinen, 6'10 kid, um, got a lot of ball skill from what I've heard, um, can shoot it a little bit, needs some muscle, which a year with um, Dr. Ramsey um, should do him some good. Uh, hopefully down the road, he's, he's an impact big for us. And then the last is Latrell Giselle, kid out of Keller in Texas. I, I kind of live in the area. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see him play this year. He's He was hurt most of the year. But I think that Giselle, he's a tiny kid. He's like 5'9", five, 5'10", five, really unheralded recruit. I think he was down to Kansas. He was offered by Kansas and Dallas Baptist, which is a Division II school. And so 
he hit he once he got the offer from KU, he hit him with the no take backs, signed on the dotted line, and and that was that. I'm I guess the staff, I guess every year they're gonna have the the Frank Mason endowment. Like we're gonna go get one one player that no one's ever heard of, undersized, and just hope that he turns into the national player of the year. Well, hopefully that's the case, but I just I just don't see how uh Jethro Muskinen or Latrell Giselle really have much of an impact on next year's team. And that's okay. That's okay. It's a good problem to have. So that's who we have lined up for next year. I would anticipate, if I had to guess a starting five right now, I would think that Marcus Garrett is a lock to start at the point. I would think that Bryce Thompson is a lock to start off the ball. The third guard, you would speculate that it Ochai Abaji has the best chance to start. And then personally, I would go with uh, a four or five combination of Mitch Lightfoot and big Dave. That's how I think we'll start the year. Now, could Christian Brown work his way into the starting lineup? Of course. Could Jalen Wilson? Of course. Could Tristan make a huge jump? Of course. Um, could Ochai not be a starter? I mean, I think it's unlikely, but I think with Bill Self, one thing that we know is anything is on the table. And if you're not performing at a starter level, then you won't start. That's just all there is to it. So I think we have some really, really good pieces with next year's team. Now, unfortunately, as bad as the Big 12 was this year, quite the opposite is true for next year. I mean, you got Baylor, who was a number one team in the country, brings almost everybody back. You've got Texas, who is as spare and as as poorly coached as they are. They've got pretty much everybody coming back and have a really good chance to land Greg Brown, one of the top 10 players in the country. Oklahoma State, as bad as they were this year, they've got a really good recruiting class coming in, probably the best player in the, the country as a freshman. Kate Cunningham, they're going to be good. Oklahoma's going to be better. Uh, West Virginia, Oscar Shibway's coming back, so they should be better. I mean, the league is going to be really, really tough top to bottom. And I even mentioned uh, Texas Tech. I think Chris Beard's one of the best coaches in the country, and you know they'll be better next year. So we got our work cut out for us, but um, that that's just part of being a KU fan, I guess, is – uh, what's the saying? No pressure, no diamonds. So um, at the end of the day, it, it was a truly disappointing end to the season for reasons that we are not used to whatsoever. I'm really, really sad that we didn't get to see at least how it would have played out. Personally, deep down, obviously with my crimson and blue tinted glasses on, we were going to win the national championship. And I thought we were going to do it in dominating fashion. But... That is left uh, to be speculation in perpetuity, which is unfortunate. But I think we're, we're in good shape for next year. And it's going to be extremely, extremely fun to watch these guys get back out on the court and see what they can do. So that's it for today. I want to thank everybody. Very sincere thank you to everyone who t- took a listen to the, to the pilot, the maiden voyage, so to speak, of the Wave the Wheat podcast. If you want more, you can always find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash wave the wheat. Definitely give us a follow on Twitter. 
twitter.com slash wave the wheat pod pod twitter.com slash wave the wheat pod that'll be your best point of contact to learn about new episodes until we get set up on all the major podcast sites like uh, spotify google apple all that good stuff but again thanks for taking the time to listen and as always rock chalk